You're listening to the 90-10 rule. 90% business, 10% music. Jordan, Brian Jennings, and myself, Kevin Davis. We are the 9010 Rule, and we're here again at Writing Sessions of America, ATL. Uh, the National Conference is popping off, and um, I was hoping we would be able to catch up with some of the panelists that came to uh, share their expertise with the people. Yeah, there's always a diverse group of people here. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's perfectly aligned with what we do. It's the periphery. It's the guys outside of the, the norm, the people that you don't necessarily get the meeting with. The pushy button. The ones that actually, I can't even talk. The ones that can push a button on your career. Like right. Thornell, right? Like right. He's actually what people would refer to as the machine that you put behind artists with the pr- promotions, marketing, publicity. He's one of the people that is very, you know, uh, necessary for an artist's career because he's going to basically help you market yourself to your hopeful consumers. Yeah, I think he does more. He he gives artists the light that uh, I think a lot of artists think their manager is supposed to do. Does that make sense? Right. You know how artists, how especially a new artist, they think their manager is supposed to get all the dates and do make it look great and all of that kind of stuff, which I get it. But at the same time, the manager's supposed to manage and you got the marketing guy that does the marketing. And Thornell is, you know, one of the best at it. He definitely has a a, a, a rap sheet that would, that would attest to that. Strong. He's been, yeah, he's actually, you know, received Grammy nominations for a lot of the projects that he's been on. I think 10... Grammy nominations or 10 Grammy 12. mentions. 12. Wow, 12 Grammys. Yeah. That's, that's unheard of. That's absolutely amazing. So I'm definitely looking forward to uh, the, the knowledge that he has to share because he comes from that school of when we actually, there was actually a marketing 
plan, a promotional team behind artists. You know, there was actually... Everything made sense. Yeah, a campaign that was run through that people were consistent with and it act, they stuck to it. The artist was in under, under full understanding of it, the management. Everybody worked as a cohesive unit. So um, I think that's why a lot of artists from those days have much stronger careers than a lot of the new artists that come out today. They actually know what they're... They, you can see them cut the switch on. Whereas now right. it's, it's almost like, well, my life is interesting. I live a movie. Like, yeah, you really don't live a movie. Right. There, there's there's a plan that yeah, goes into this. Yeah, it's all ego. I, I hate when artists say that. But I, I get it because I think right. there's this... There, especially in this business, there's a certain place for your ego when right. you're, you know, trying to, you know, draw people to your art. But... That's a yeah, very small it, place, though, because it's it's very small. I think that can be a a part of a persona, but we're talking about it at, at a time when albums were coming out and people were planning. Okay, this album we're going to do this because we want to be able to grow. We want we want you know we want to be able to have a career, so we're going to take this person and this is the beginning of their career. This album is going to deal with this, and this is going to leave us room for that artist to grow and them to you know for us to see the maturation of the artist over the years. Where I think now people are just focused on what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. But if you're truly trying to be successful, you want to be able to look at your look at your career and see a starting point and an ending point and be able to kind of have some people on your team that can color those years in between with, you know, things that actually make sense and that are going to take your take your listeners with you, right. you know. And, and what's funny is that um it's not really funny, but you know, you say that I think that something that I always wanted to impart on my students when I was teaching is that, you know, you get an interview like this with somebody who's got so much knowledge and so much experience. You don't really want them to tell you how to push the buttons. You kind of just want to hear their story because there are so many jewels that just drop out of just the fact that they were in the room when such and such happened or when this happened, you know? Yeah. I, and I think people don't take enough value in, in put enough value into that. Like just listening to the, the, the story itself. But you know what, Crystal, you said some a moment ago about how artists are more concerned with what they're doing right now. and But I, I get that because they're trying to figure out which bills they're talking about right now. Right. And matter <clears throat> of fact, when Thornell gets here, I want to make sure I ask him more about monetizing because I think that like everyone wants to put on the show and look like a celebrity, but the probably the most common error that I think independent artists have is converting that celebrity into cash. Like not knowing how to, they, yeah, they know how to make it look like they spent a million dollars, but they've not actually received a million dollars from from their market or from their audience. So I want to talk to him a little bit about that. I wonder how many artists actually know that there needs to be a budget for any of this anyway. Like, you know, and budget scares people in general, though. You know that, right? The idea is that social media can can fuel everything that I have to do, but that's not really accurate. There has to be some money spent in some strategic places to make this thing really happen. Of course, but like Russell Simmons said, every dollar you spend has to look like 10. Yeah. That's just, you know, I, I guess that's basic one-on-one, you know? Yeah. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to our interview. Okay, so we are here with Mr. Thornell Jones Jr. He has been a leader in entertainment marketing for over 20 years, although he does not look that way. Um, he's worked for a, a lot of different labels, such as Mercury, Giant, Motown, MJJ Music, Hidden Beach, and he actually holds 12 Grammy certificates for marketing with the amazing Miss Jill Scott, Ann Nesby, Calvin Richardson, and many, many more. Welcome to the 9010 Rule. Thank you. Thornell. Nice to be Legendary. here. Legendary. <laughs> yeah, Good to that's have awesome. You. 
<laughs> it's really funny I use that word for other people. Legendary. I just live in my life. <laughs> well, you're doing some amazing things. I mean, 12 Grammy certificates for, you know, artists that are household names that have long-standing careers that have not been just fads that have come and gone, but have, mm-hmm. you know, provided music for years. Tell us, what do you think the, the secret to that is? Because so many want that. What do you think the secret to marketing and creating something that's going to last in this business? Well, it's funny because it's a very, at the last panel that we just did on marketing and radio, um, one of the last things that came out was, don't forget that all of this stuff starts with the music. And so, you know, it starts with the music. So I, I remember when I was at A&M Records in the mid-90s, um, the head of promotion um, had a plaque on his door and it said, what makes a hit record? It's in the grooves, dummy. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. Basically, so when, it's, when we're talking about legendary artists or artists who have had long careers, it really starts with their own art, artistry, the fact that they're authentic to who they are and that they have strong songwriting and, 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 and from a record standpoint that the, that the production is contemporary and that it, it fits within you know, the contemporary radio uh, environment. Um, and that, you know, there's a number of factors that go into making a hit record. But beyond that, when it comes to careers, it really comes down to having your own voice and having being um, consistent within that voice, meaning your positioning, your niche within the marketplace. You know, we know, you know, Mary J. Blige, when we say Mary J. Blige, we know everything that comes to be with Mary J. Blige and mm-hmm. all her, you know, life struggles, et cetera, and how she puts that into her music, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we know... Luther Vandross, you know, these um, iconic artists, you know that they were, he was the black romance guy, right? right. Um, and we can go on and on, you know, uh, Chris Brown is the R&B bad boy, right? So as you um, are, as an artist is trying to determine, you know, uh, what they're going to do, it starts with themselves and being authentic to themselves and it starts with the music. Let me ask you a question because you brought up, we're going to use those two examples, Luther Vandross and and Chris Brown. So obviously years ago when Luther Vandross was at his peak, we didn't have social media. So there was a large part of of Luther Vandross' life as a man that we didn't know about, you know, because artists were very private, you know. And then you flash over to Chris Brown where every time he makes a decision or every time he gets in an argument or gets ticked off or goes to the store, we can see it. How, how, um, How much more difficult do you think it is to stick to a marketing campaign with the artist today than it would have been years ago with the Luther Vandross? In some ways, you already answered your question. I think that um, that social media is a great boon, but it is also um, to marketing artists or to communicating with your fans, but it also has uh, the downside of putting a magnifying glass on, you know, everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, using those two, I'm a, I'm a, let's get real. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, every year at Christmas time, we would listen to classic Christmas albums, Nat King Cole, and um, uh, I mean, I, I love the Carpenter's Christmas album. They have two of them. And um, we also listened to Johnny Mathis, right? And I love Johnny Mathis's Christmas album. Um, but Johnny Mathis was actually a, a pop singer, even though he was a black man. And I remember... Probably in the early 70s, there was an article about him in Ebony Magazine. And right there in the middle of the article was a picture of him and his white boyfriend. And in the caption, it said, 
Johnny Mathis and his companion, right? So they were very political about it or very sotto voce, which is Italian for uh, um, whisper. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but, you know, it was there, but it was not talked about. Right. 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 Imagine now <laughs> they'd be all up in the business, right? Right. right? You know, and it would be, and and every move would be, you know, you know under a micro, uh, it'd be a political. It'd be political too, and it'd be very political. Mm-hmm. Do you think that hurts the artist? Does it hurt your campaign? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that it can hurt your campaign, um, but then once again, it comes to being authentic. Because if there's an audience for your brand of craziness, then <laughs> why not? Right. You know? Love that. I remember, you know, in the 70s, in the, in the 60s and the 70s, um, our, uh, our uh, legendary um, Barry Gordy came, uh, developed a uh, style of marketing that was aspirational, where the artists um, were... Uh, polished. They came from the hood, but they were polished, and they were aspirational towards a uh, a, um, a global, you know, multicultural audience. You know, they were ours, but they were polished in such a way that they they could have commercial, tea with like a, they were commercial. They could have tea with the Queen of England, or you know, they could you know be in the hood and and you know eat soul food or whatever. But they were they were polished in a process they called artist development, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, when you're getting prepared for the global marketplace, which is, let's make no doubt about it, music is a global market. Um, It is probably one of our our most important uh, U.S. exports. Um, Entertainment is. So the notion of artist development at that time was preparing, uh, at least in in black music, was preparing artists for uh, a global marketplace. And and that was developed by, 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 by Barry Gordy and his team. So, I mean, uh, then flash forward to like the, the mid-90s, the early 90s, and Puff Daddy at Uptown Records and then um, Bad Boy developed a new marketing strategy called Culture Mirror Image Marketing, where instead of it being about the artists being aspirational and, and, and presenting aspirational images, which was, you know, think about it. The '60s, the civil rights movement. We have overcome. We we will. We shall overcome. Moving from, you know, being segregated to into the mainstream. That was appropriate and a theme and an approach for that era in that period of time. But what um, what uh, I guess we'll just say Puffy um, did at that period of time was he took uh, that kind of approach and turned it on its head. Head and said that consumers want to uh, see artists who they can relate to on a peer basis. Mary, Gay, Mary J. Blige, this homegirl from around the way, she just happens to be able to sing and she wears better clothes. Um, you know, uh, Biggie's story of him being a drug dealer, you know, and uh, trying to uh, raise money for his daughter is uh, a story that brothers can relate to. And so, you know, culture mirror image marketing then became the um, the, the approach in in the nineties, and 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 we're we're seeing a lot of that still today, especially by genre. Um, so, the idea of social media having access to your life can definitely enhance what you're trying to do, whether it's um, you know creating a persona. Because let's let's be honest, you know, social media 
gives you access to the artist, but at the same time, you can control the content that's being fed out, you know, whether it's through, you know, photo shoots and structured memes and, and um, you know, campaigns and use of hashtags and things of that nature. You can control it to a certain extent, you know, so the, how, how public or how private you want to be um, uh, can be regulated, but it can't be fully controlled. I told my 18-year-old niece, you know, who likes to put, you know, crazy ass pictures on, on, on Facebook and, and, and uh, Instagram, like just wait till you apply for a job and somebody pulls your name up and sees these pictures and decides they don't want to give you a job. Mm-hmm. How about that? All right. Let me ask you a question. Um, cause you are with, you know, worked with one of my favorite artists, Jill Scott and my, I guess, background is publicity. So I, I know, I understand a little bit of that, but how difficult, um, do you think the challenges with female artists, because, you know, female artists have a very distinct look that we consider commercial. And when Jill Scott first started, she did not fit um, that, I guess, distinct look that, that a lot of times executives look for in female artists. So do you are you able to kind of talk about how you all were able to take someone that was not the stereotypical size four and, you know, would weave down her back and didn't want to be, you know, didn't want to be represented that way and bring a real, like a real woman image out. How difficult was that? Or was it difficult for your team? Well, this is what I can say about that. Um, Jill came out of Philadelphia, came out of the Roots camp and um, um, had toured with the Roots in uh, 1999 Erica Badu had done the song that she wrote, um, You Got Me, and but wasn't on the tour with the Roots to perform the song. And Jill went out to perform the song. And it was early on, and I don't know how much conversation was had about the imaging, but I will say this, that Jill is an actress. She's always been an actress. She was a poet. She was an actress. And so a lot of what, you know, happened in terms of Jill's image early on was really just her being authentic and her presenting herself in in a way that was comfortable for her. Um, Puffy, to bring him back up again, was actually interested in signing her, but they also wanted her to revamp the image. And Steve McKeever said, "Look, you know, I won't make you mess with your image. You know, we'll we'll figure it out, right?" So um, she created this brilliant album with the guys from Atusta Jazz and uh, I had known uh, Jazzy Jeff and and Will Smith and you know people from Philadelphia for a long time my family is from South Jersey and so I spent a lot of time in Philly so I understood it I also understood the, the Neosol marketplace and um, how um, organic it was, you know, it's got the, the, in the, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, the Neo Soul place was, the Neo Soul marketplace was the, was the home for black hippies. So I understood that if we were being authentic to that culture, that it did, that all the, you know, we didn't need to be overly polished. We need to be stylized, but we need to, didn't need to be overly polished. Um, so when we did the, uh, first two videos for the for the album in August of 2000 uh, we did in Philly North Philly and actually in, in Jill's neighborhood um, where she grew up we did um, um, getting in the way and we did um, a long walk 
And uh, we really sweat the details on that. You know, Chris Robinson and his team from Robot Films, along with Jesse Terrero, who's actually the, the name director on the, on, the, on the two videos, really sweat the details of the neighborhood and um, tried to show the culture because that was how we were able to get away with, you know, having her be such an around-the-way the girl who was... Uh, was, you know, and I would say it this way, slightly overweight. She wasn't even fat. She was just slightly overweight. I have a, a, a little story where I was um, just walking around the neighborhood and and all the neighbors were like sitting out on their porches and stuff. They were so excited we were doing this in the neighborhood. And when the neighbor, one of the neighbors said, come over here and talk to me. I was like, oh, okay. No, no, no. I'm standing there talking to her. She says, you know, she didn't used to be so big. <laughs> And I fell out. I was just like, these are people who've seen her since she was like a little, little girl, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and everybody has their comments. And everybody, but yet and still, I w- we, we did a concert in Philadelphia at the Tower Theater. And that was the most crazy mixed up audience that I could imagine. There was old people and players in color black suits and sisters <laughs> in church hats and, and, um, you know, gay people and and lesbians and and earthy crunchy folks and people who looked like they walked came off of the you know the 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 Paris runway. She was appealing to everyone. Her music was so authentic, and what she was saying and communicating. I w- you know the one thing about Jill that I loved was the fact that um, she talked to men in a way that other male artists weren't talking to men. And I remember I was in Cleveland, Ohio, and I heard this gangster in a lowrider playing the Love Rain remix. And I actually went up to him and I asked him, I said, so what you like about, you know, what you, know, what you like about Jill? He said, because she talks to me like I'm a man. Yeah. Yeah. I she talks to agree. me like I'm a man. And I was just like, oh, okay, I got it. I totally get it. And that's, and, and so I had the privilege of running her social media for many years. So, I mean, she's got 3.2 3. million of Facebook followers, but it's 87% female. But those 13% men who have engaged with her are engaged with her because she's speaking to them as if she's, a, as, as they're men. Yeah. Obviously, you get the, um, the, the, the necessity to be visual, you know, being that you did Jill Scott's um, documentary mm-hmm. and then the other shows you've done. Talk a little bit to our listeners about how important the visual aspect is of music these days. Well, let me start by saying that within a social media environment, um, video is 70% more engaging than still images. So the visual, oh yeah, and then 70% of your audience is also a, a, a coming to you through their mobile devices. So video and mobile is fundamental. It's key. You can't get around it. And if you really want to engage with your audience, you have to use video. You have to use visual. So video doesn't necessarily mean music video, even though that is a, uh, a way to package a song and to deliver the themes and things of that nature in a visual kind of way. And kind of... Um, make some eye candy, but you also have to be strategic about, you know, what you're doing with the other video platforms. And that would be whether it's, you know, creating web series for YouTube or, you know, uh, live either impromptu or uh, 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 planned video, uh, live video streams, you know, okay, I'm going to be Facebooking, you know, live, you know, at at 1230 or, you know, engaging your audience with, uh, with the visual and the imaging. But 
as we were talking about before in terms of social media being a window into your life, if you want to control what people are seeing, then you have to plan. You have to plan ahead and you have to say, you know what? I got to, you know, for female artists, if you're not doing the Alicia Keys, uh, you know, I'm not wearing a makeup thing, you got to make sure that you got your makeup right. You got your hat, your hair is done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You got the, all the I's that have to be dotted and all the T's have to be crossed right. because you will be critiqued. You know, oh, she sang really good, but you know, did you see that weave? <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's coming too. Internet cares not. Yes, so, yes. I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, they hear the word, I'm going to get the machine behind me. And I think that really is marketing and promotion. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree. The machine is, is, is really just, you know, vernacular for um, all the different um, avenues to have your music and your artistry exposed. But it also speaks to, in, in order to be able to do that, you have to have a team. Right. You know, um, I developed a marketing methodology uh, or framework uh, in the mid-90s. I was sitting in a marketing meeting and I was just like, we keep on doing the same stuff over, over and over again. So I kind of went to 30,000 feet and I looked down and I said, you know what? There are six channels for music marketing. Airplay, retail, press and publicity, video, consumer, and the internet. And in mid-90s, the web had just started. The internet was started in the 80s. The web was started in the 90s. And so we really didn't know what was going to happen. But I knew very early on, because I uh, come from a family of technologists and scientists and stuff like that. My dad was a, was a marketing executive and an engineer for IBM for 33 years. So I was very aware of technology trends very early on. But I would always say start at the internet because that's the place where you can reach the most people, the fastest with the lowest per person cost. And it also had all the other five channels within the six channels. So consider digital radio stations, and uh, uh, online retailers, um, online press outlets, mm -hmm. uh, obviously vi uh, video platforms, um, and an opportunity to connect and advertise directly to the consumer. So um, that strategy, that form, that that um, framework, has been actually the cornerstone of my success. Just kind of understanding that, and the fact that there were these six channels, and that there needed to be synergy across these six channels, um, kind of leads to a level of success that um, that can't be achieved by just being an internet star or just having a hit single. How many times, you know, a record come out, it does really, really well, and the album doesn't go anywhere, right? So you have to think, be thinking holistically, and you have to be thinking strategically. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, so if, if I may, um, once all of, well, I think all the, the background work has been done as far as, as marketing, but now that you've got the, if, if I'm an independent artist and I'm walking through your process mm -hmm. and so we've done the video, we're doing all those things and now it's come to the live show. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me a little bit about music and I, th I think you had uh, started something as well with a Real Music Live. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, actually I'm very excited about Real Music Live. Real Music Live is a live music television show. We actually take obviously live to tape but it's concert style. It's gone, gone, gone back to the 70s. It's a modern version of let's say 
uh, Bert Sugarman's Midnight Special or uh, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, but with you know uh, 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 a number of hosts and backstage access and social media integration. Mm. So um, I'm always about live music, and I'm always about trying to create platforms where artists can actually perform live. And that was one of the cornerstones of Hidden Beach. I was there 15 years, and there were plenty of artists who came through our doors who we thought, oh, this record is dope, but like you have to be able to perform it live. The music business has kind of gone back to the way it was like in the 50s and the 60s, where you would put out a record and then you would tour and build this 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 single before an album came out, right? And so artists had live performance chops. Then in the 80s, the, the record business was pulling these artists along and they went out there and weren't able to actually perform live, right? So um, I think that now that we're in this marketplace where, once again, we're in a singles-driven marketplace, um, we have an opportunity to, to kind of if you're strategic thinking, if you're thinking strategically, excuse me, um, the the live um, sphere of your career should be the fuel because that's the way you'll be able to monetize. You're not going to make money off of the music itself. So you have to monetize it through live shows, merchandise, you know, sync placements, um, international, you know, international touring and, and, and sales. I went to South Africa last year for the first time and walked into a record store. There was a line out the door. There are places in the world where they still buy music for music's sake. But, you know, if you're thinking about strategically about, a, uh, about your career, get your live game. Live game is really, 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 really important. Um, and developing your live show is really important. And I think consumers are willing to pay these high ticket prices when you're giving mm-hmm. them a show. Right. If you're, I mean, somebody, uh, a, a really good friend of mine who was in the music industry for many years went to the uh, Kanye show in um, in uh, L.A. last week. He said he left before the show was over. He said, I didn't pay all this money to see Kanye just walking back and forth across the stage. So have your have your show game right. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. That's great advice. Yeah. That's great advice. And I think that artists a lot of times aren't thinking about that because they're thinking about what they're doing online and they're not thinking about that. Um, I've had the pleasure to work with TLC for years and that's one of the things that, that I mean, they're not, they're, they don't think like this generation. And so um, people were trying to get Chili and T-Boss to do a track show and they're like, no, 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 no. The people want to see a show when they come to see us. We were taught from the old days to put on a show. So they're touring overseas, you know, actually right now and it's like we Always, no matter what we do, we get on stage, we owe the audience that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think new artists just don't have that same thought process, you know. Well, I mean, the internet and the speed at which information comes at us uh, kind of lulls us and gives us a false sense of security. And and, and this uh, no, like, ultimate critique of the millennial generation, but, you know, they grew up with fast internet speeds and microwaves and, and you know, I want it now and I just push a button instant and I get gratification. it. Instant gratification. You know, the notion, yeah. instant gratification and the notion that, you know, um, they don't really know the work that goes into getting to that, to that end. And, um, you know, even the idea of being able to control, you know, uh, the information that's put out, 
you know, any artist with a smartphone and an internet connection can start making videos in their bedroom and upload them to YouTube and, you know, and garner an audience. But then once you pull back out of the, that camera screen and what's within camera view, you know, what's really going on? What's really going on in that person's life? What's really going on to support that artist outside of what is streaming through that video outlet, whether right. it's your Snapchat or whether it's your Vine or whether it's your YouTube or your or your Facebook Live, what's actually going on outside of the cameras of you? You know, what is the work that you put in? Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell um, says that in order to become an expert at anything, you have to put in 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. So let's say you put in 40 hours a week, right? That's eight years. And the only way you shorten the time is to put more time in. So a full-fledged dedication, 80-hour week is now going to get you down to four years, <laughs> right? So you have to put in the work. Doesn't matter what it is. If you're a doctor, lawyer, nurse, you know, singer, songwriter, producer, whatever, commit and you will get the results. And you, but only if you put in the work. In due time. Right. In due time. <laughs> Got to put in the work. I, was, I did a little workshop with, um, with some third and fourth graders, you know, Boy was 12 years old. Actually, this boy had been left back a couple of times. He was 14. And he said he wanted to be an artist. I said, okay, so you need to start working now. And you, should expe- you shouldn't expect to have success until you're 23. And he was like, oh. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just know that that's what it is. You can't get away from it. No matter what. You may have some early success, but it won't be sustained that overnight success, no such thing. No right? such thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's why sometimes I, I, I wonder why, you know, even for myself on the business side of the business, why um, it's taken so long for, 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 for me to get to be able to do some of the things I want to do too. Um, and a lot of just that has to do with the shifting landscape of the music business, but it had to do with, Putting in my ten thousand hours. Awesome. So now I've got about thirty thousand hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thornell Jones Jr., we really appreciate your time and wealth of knowledge. Thank how, you. How can people interact with you? Well, I gotta say, I'm more of a Facebook person than than I am Instagram or Twitter, although you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Thornell J. Um, my Facebook is uh, Thornell Jones Jr. And um we are actually launching a new portal. Um, it's called uh, the Ovation Agency, and you can find us at ovationagency.co. So Fortress Marketing is becoming the Ovation Agency. I'm very excited about that. So between Real Music Live and the Ovation Agency, I'm going to be a really busy guy. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, we'll be, make sure we keep up with you. Absolutely. I, pre- I look forward to uh, coming back and giving you an update at some point. Oh, yeah. That'll be great. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that. I'm really glad that Thornell had a chance to stop by and, and, and talk a little bit about that. I think that when people hear like those real life stories, you know, it's one thing to see the accolades, but to hear, you know, about the process of certain people not wanting to accept Jill Scott and her having people on her team that were willing to make remain consistent and, and were, were totally you know, convinced and ready to ride out for her to, to be herself. I think that's cool. I think that's what makes other artists understand that this is, you know, everybody's not going to get it. Every label is not for you. But if you have a team that really understands you, I think you can really win. And it's apparent that she had that. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, and I didn't know that Puff tried to sign Jill Scott. Like Me neither. It, it's weird that. hearing how history would have played out differently. You know what I mean? It would have been mm-hmm. awful, I think. You think so? I think that would have been an awful story. Had Puff had, and Jill Scott. It probably would never have happened. Take that, take yeah. that. I think he would have changed the, the Shimmy, whole... shake. I'm, I'm shaking my shoulders. <laughs> well, I don't think what she does matches up with what Puff does. What right. she does, and I, you know, he does it really well. But if you look at the artists that were, I went to the Bad Boy concert that he just did, the reunion concert, and you look at those artists, Jill Scott has nothing in common with any of his female artists at all. If you look at like Total, Little Kim, Faith Evans, it's they're all kind of artists that merge with. You know his. Diddy it seems like it would have been tough to have Lil Kim and Jill Scott on the mm-hmm. same label. Faith, Faith is probably the closest. But out still, of all Jill, of like he said, Jill's a character. She's very right. animated. Um, I love what he said about the way she talks to men. Her her image and her music is something that's very conscious and very, you know, it's 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 more conscious for without the being com- annoying. Right, right, right. Without being preachy at all, it's just it just is, and I think it's a different message. Balance, both needed, but I just don't think those two worlds would have fit well together. It's not flashy. Right. You know, it's more it's more nutritional value as opposed to I'm know. now wishing that Faith hadn't been on on Bad Boy and been somewhere else too. Because Faith is one of my favorite singers. I don't know why I added that, but I just... No, don't. she's Faith is dope. Yeah. But I mean, we got to think about how Faith was introduced, though. And she still is, She, you know, she fits more of that swag. I get what you're saying. Yeah. She's vocally talented. She's definitely more vocally talented than some of the other artists. But that- she needed to write... I, I think Faith needed to write producer. I can't I can't imagine Faith coming out with different records than what she, what she did. Like, even I remember how it had kind of had... It was smooth, it was soul, it was R&B, but it still had that hip-hop feel or was it yeah. embraced by hip-hop. Um, See, so yeah, I can't imagine that not being, you know, a part of who she is. I agree. I agree. Well, I, I mean, definitely, you know, hope he he dropped some gems, and I hope that um, testimony is encouraging to some artists out there that are trying to figure out if they want to change up their look or they want to change up their style. Um, you know, it could be that you just need to stick to it and find people that believe in you yeah. just as you are, and keep you know keep it pushing. And I think most importantly that there's a plan behind it. Like we we mentioned that earlier, but there's a plan behind all this. It's not just throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. There's actually a process. Yeah, nobody does that anymore. Plan? Are you serious? <laughs> right. Maybe they should. The huge thank you to Thornell Jones for stopping by. And also a huge thank you to Kevin Shine with WSSATL. Yes, sir. Writing Sessions of America for, you know, providing some opportunities for up-and-coming artists to hear jewels from people of that magnitude. Dope. Yeah, Absolutely. So, thanks again, and uh, that's another episode of the 9010 Rule. Visit us at the9010rule.com. That's 9010rule.com.